Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to The Paddock in the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. This is the story of Ellen Challoner, a remarkable woman who many people in the racing world have never heard of, but who is now recognised as the pioneer of women's involvement in racehorse training in Britain. In 1886, Ellen became the first woman to be given a permit to train horses in Britain. A year after, in June 1887, Ellen trained a winner at the prestigious Royal Ascot. Ellen and members of her family are buried in two unmarked graves at Newmarket Cemetery, opposite the Rowley Mile Racecourse. In this podcast, The Trailblazing Trainer, you will be hearing from three of her descendants, including former Irish champion jump jockey Charlie Swan, about a campaign to get a proper headstone for this remarkable lady who died in Newmarket in 1944, aged 98. I began by asking great-granddaughters Susie Wilkes and Marietta Crickar what they knew about Ellen when they were growing up. Yes, certainly by, by my mother. I mean, my mother, although she didn't see much of her in later years because she was abroad, but when, when they came home on leave, which was just before the war was the last time, you know, they used to go racing at Newmarket and go and see her. So I've always known of her history um, in the family. All I knew was that my grandfather was a trainer, that he trained horses, and my father was a great horseman himself. And the first time I was aware of her was when Susie sent me a newspaper cutting and as for Charlie, I thought all his family were Irish. That's right. Yeah, I think she's my great, great grandmother. Yeah, no, because everybody thought I got my riding. I got it all from my father's side. But um, no, it's all from my mum's side, I think. But everyone associates, associates you with Ireland. Yeah, that's right. I mean, 
my parents my parents are English and they came over to Ireland in 1965 and I was born in Ireland in 1968 so um so you know basically my all all my family came from England and what did you what did you know about Ellen when you were growing up I didn't know very much actually it's only in the last few years I've really found out more you know more about her yeah so it's through Marietta that you found out more yeah, and my mom, and my dad, my dad had a few books about, you know, about her as well. I think we had, she had, he had some sort of um, uh, documentation about it as well. So, so he was showing me. So, why the campaign now, uh, Susie? Ellen passed away on the fifth of March, nineteen forty-four. Well, really, due to Marietta, because I have always held all the the history of the Challoner family. So in the year 2000, I started sort of trying to do research, a bit more research into the family tree. And I've always sent Marietta any bits of paper or press cuttings or things that I had. And I've, I knew that Ellen was in an unmarked grave in Newmarket because I've been there. They're all, all the family are sadly in unmarked graves in Newmarket Cemetery. And I think during lockdown, Marietta was going through all the bits of paper that I sent her. And she think, you know, she came to the conclusion that Ellen was an important part of racing history and that it was very sad that she was lay in an unmarked grave in Newmarket. And, um, you know, she talked to me about it. And I said, I know, Marietta, and I've always for years I've been meaning to do something about it. And. So she took up the cudgels and has decided that it's something that should happen. And it's really, she has been the driving force behind it. You know, to have her grave marked, and she should be honoured with a stone, a special stone over a grave. And I thought it's pretty disgraceful that she's buried in an unmarked grave. You know, it's, it's shocking that her grave is just left unmarked. So I felt I had to do something about it. Ellen was born in Middleham, Yorkshire, on the 27th of December, 1845. Co-author of The Heath and the Horse and racing historian Tim Cox talks about Ellen's racing background. She was the daughter of John Osborne, who trained up in Yorkshire, and she was the sister of John Osborne Jr., who was a 12 times Uh, classic winning jockey, a significant jockey in late Victorian times. So she was steeped in racing history almost from birth. How did Ellen become a trainer? I thought that Florence Nagel was regarded as the first female trainer following a court case which went to the Court of Appeal in 1966. Uh, It's quite clear that Ellen Challoner became a trainer in 1886 when her husband died. Uh, And she continued training for a short period, uh, up to about 1894. It's not clear why she stopped, but there was a fire at uh, Osborne House where she was training. uh, And that seems to have precipitated her giving up the day-to-day job of training, but I'm sure she was still involved. You said she trained at Osborne House. Uh, Who trains at Osborne House now in Newmarket? Uh, Osborne House is the overflow yard for Heath House, which is where Sir Mark Prescott trains. 
so if you go uh, to uh, Osborne House uh, stables, uh, that is now Sir Mark's property. Uh, and the large house, uh, which you see at the bottom of Warren Hill, uh, is where uh, Mrs. Challoner lived. She did train for some significant owners, uh, such as Mr. Tattersall, who had the uh, sales company, and Matthew Dawson, who was the great trainer and a great supporter of Mrs. Challoner. Um, and he was a predecessor of Sir Mark at Heath House. So they're across the road from each other, but he did put horses with her. And Matthew Dawson was a significant trainer of the time. Matthew Dawson was the great trainer at Newmarket, training horses like St. Simon. Uh, he had Fred Archer as his stable jockey. Uh, so he is the one of the great names of Newmarket training. Newspaper reports say that aged 11, Ellen saw her first race when her brother Johnny Osborne Jr. won the 2,000 guineas at Newmarket, the winner Verdette being trained by her brother-in-law, George Abdale. After getting married to Tom Challoner, who rode for her father, Johnny Osborne Sr., the family moved south to Newmarket. Tom was a leading jockey of the 1860s and 1870s, winning 10 classics, including the Derby on Macaroni in 1863. Macaroni was trained at Palace House Stables, home now of the National Horse Racing Museum. Dr Esther Harper, who now works in research, funding and policy, completed a PhD on the history of horse racing when she was based at the National Horse Racing Museum between 2013 and 2017. Dr Esther Harper explains what the permit Ellen was given by the Jockey Club meant in 1886. It was written about, though, as a licence at the time. So basically, as from 1872, trainers who wished to use Jockey Club land to train their horses were required to apply for a licence. So any trainer who trained at Newmarket would therefore have had to obtain a licence and obey jockey club rules, not just at the race course, but also on the training grounds. And if you didn't play by the rules, then your trainer's licence could be withdrawn. And so as the influence of the jockey club grew, eventually everyone who intended to train racehorses then needed to apply for a licence, which then came in, into force in the very early 20th century. But what was the world like for a woman in racing in the 19th century? Dr Esther Harper confirmed that there is evidence that women were actively involved in the early part of the 19th century. There are a number of reports um, about how women were involved in racing. So a really great example is so the trainer John Day. We've got a report from 1840 that talks about the role that his mother played in his stables. So when, when John was away she would actually supervise the lads and tell them what work the horses should do. And she also mixed all the medicines for the horses and would, and would treat the ill horses as well. So if you think about that, that's actually quite a lot of responsibility and suggests that she was very knowledgeable, even though she didn't hold a trainer's licence. I also sought the opinion of two women trainers of the 21st century. 2017 Grand National winner Lucinda Russell 
and Newmarket-based Gay Kellaway, who, when a jockey, became the first woman to ride a winner at Royal Ascot in 1987. What did they imagine it would have been like at the end of the 19th century? Well, I mean, it, it would be very, very different to what it's like now. I think training in itself was very different. But um, to be a woman, you know, in those days, people did a lot of stuff under nom de plumes because they didn't want to admit to being a woman. Um, so it would be very tough and very hard. And the other thing is, it was very such a traditional sport and such a traditional way of life that breaking with the tradition and being a woman would be would be hard. I mean, dealing with staff and stuff. I think we're all very keen about equality now, but in those days, they were very keen about inequality. So um, she would have faced very many challenges. And she had eight children as well. I know, yes. I hope that she had a bit of help with them. But uh, yeah, to have so many children is, is quite incredible. So she was obviously a very good organiser uh, and coped with, with good things and bad things. She obviously was a very, a very marvellous woman. It's a, sh- a shame that she's not alive nowadays, that we could, could know what it was really like then. No, I couldn't. I couldn't imagine. <laughs> I knew what it was like in the 1980s. So I couldn't begin to imagine how difficult the stumbling blocks a woman would have had to be accepted as a racehorse trainer. Newmarket must have been a very different place in the, in the 1880s. Now known as the home of racing, I asked Tim what it was like in Newmarket when Ellen was training at Osborne House. It was, I think, for two reasons. One, there were far fewer horses than there are now. It was an important racing centre, but the... The number of horses on the heath was probably of the order of a thousand horses. Now we get uh, three thousand horses registered uh, at Newmarket each year, uh, so it was a much smaller place. It was obviously um, a country uh, town surrounded by the gallop, so racing dominated, but it wasn't the busy place that it is now. Well, Dr. Esther Harper gave some valuable information about Ellen's training establishment, which was included in the 1891 census. What's particularly interesting is um, the 1891 census. So in that census, her profession is listed as trainer of racehorses. um, And it provides a really interesting snapshot of who was working at Osborne House. So her two sons, George and Dick, and her daughter, Mary Ellen, are living with her at that time. Um, And both of her sons are listed as groom slash jockey. There's also a domestic servant, as well as three stablemen who who are working there. Um, And there's also three jockeys who are not related to her, but they're listed as being apprenticed to her. Um, And so... Throughout the time that she was training, the number of horses at Osborne House varied slightly. But um, in in 1893, you know that she had 17 horses there. So when you consider the number of people that reported to her and and the number of horses that that she was responsible for, um, it's actually quite a significant business that she was running. Ellen's descendants, Marietta, Susie and Charlie, are all related to George, one of Ellen's seven sons. George played a unique role in confirming her position as a woman trainer soon after she had started training. After winning a race for her at Hampton Court, a jockey objected on the basis that George could not be apprenticed to a woman. The objection was overruled by the stewards when a case was discovered of a boy being apprenticed 
to a woman plumber. There's definitely a report of it almost at the time that it happened. And and there's a report from that race um, about some disagreement around an apprentice's allowance. So I'm inclined to say that that's not, that, that there's pretty robust evidence that that occurred. However, already by kind of the 1920s, then the jockey club starts revising the rules. So whereas previously those rules never had a gender attached to them, they then start stipulating gender for jockeys and trainers where previously none had, no gender had been mentioned. So it's quite interesting to kind of think of that when we then look back at, um, so Florence Nagel and Nora Wilmot, who took the jockey club to court in their long running battle to get a trainer's license in the 1960s. But I mean, they've been fighting for that since the 1930s or even late 1920s onwards. And so basically they then found themselves not being able to have a trainer's license because the jockey club said that it could only be open to men. But at the same time, we know that Ellen Challoner was, in effect, um, a licensed trainer in as far as the jockey club required a license to train on its land um, in the 1880s. The mood music definitely changed by sort of 1920 um, when then they start changing the rules so that they're, they're stipulating that it can only be open to, to, to men training. Research by Tim Cox has revealed that Ellen's three-year-old filly, Jersey Lily, won the triennial stakes, now known as the Jersey Stakes, at Royal Ascot in 1887. Jersey Lily also ran unplaced in the Oaks and the Cambridgeshire Handicap in 1887. But what did Ellen do after she finished training in 1894? The kind of the reports that I've read suggest that she was still quite active. She just wasn't training anymore. So in effect, she let her son take over training at Osborne House. Um, And I mean, it's worth thinking, you know, she was born in 46. So by the time that she steps back, she's already in her 50s. And um, it, it seems, you know, she was still quite active in the sport. She was still owning horses. And she was clearly a regular fixture around Newmarket, whether it was at the sales or at the race course. She's, she's clearly um, also a, a well-known and well-respected figure at the sales. And buyers would ask her opinion on yearlings or broodmares. Um, so I think that kind of also suggests in terms of kind of a wider respect for her expertise. She was a great character. Um, she was very well known in Newmarket. I think everybody knew her. She, in later years, she was very deaf. And my mother said it was quite embarrassing because, you know, if you met her, she used to, because she couldn't hear herself, she used to shout at you. Yeah, I think she was just, she was just, you know, she was just granny, but, but um, a very well known granny in, in her own field. Apparently, they had a, um, in her latter years at, at Newmarket on the on the race course, they she was in a wheelchair in her latter years, and they built a plinth for her by the winning post, so she could wheel her wheelchair up onto the plinth and watch the racing from there. I think she must have been an incredible character and a very strong lady. Ellen Challoner remained a regular racegoer at Newmarket into her nineties, before she died at Osborne House on the 5th of March, 1944. 
Since the famous court case in 1966, when Florence Nagel and Nora Wilmot were given licenses to train by the Jockey Club, the number of women trainers has risen to about 20%, based on figures in the 2021 Horses in Training publication. Steady but slow progress. Lucinda and Gay recalled their early days of training. Yeah, so it was it, it was funny. I started in 1995, and I think in those days things were just starting to to change very much for the better. It doesn't seem like yesterday, but actually, I suppose it was 25 years ago. So, I think uh, people, some people, you know, remarked upon being a woman and and the differences and stuff. And I think I always thought it was a very positive thing. I thought it was nice to be a little bit different and to you know, I could talk about having a woman's touch and, and so on. But of course, when I started, I only had sort of 10 horses. So it wasn't at all like how we train now. But um, I, it wasn't too much of a problem. And certainly nowadays, there is no problem, no issue at all. And I think um, a lot of these things, you know, when you talk about inequality, a lot of the time, uh, we're, we're very lucky. I think, I think all the sort of side issues have gone. There was like, I think there was only like a dozen women women trainers when I first started training it was a, a bit of a novelty more than anything and even now it's, there's not that many I mean women trainers stand out from the guys because there's a lot of very very good women trainers very few uh, you can say there's a lot of poor quality of men trainers but there's not I don't see any poor qualities of women trainers they really stand out in this day and age but like I said when I first started there was very few. And you also met Florence Nagel, the first licensed trainer in 1966. Yes, um, I met uh, Florence Nagel in the early 80s uh, when I was riding as an apprentice. I was riding for a trainer that and sadly doesn't train anymore, but I was on the favourite riding at Kempton in the Florence Nagel stakes and I had the pleasure of meeting her. Sadly, I think I finished second <laughs> um, and uh, Alison Harper won the race. But uh, it was a pleasure to meet her, and she was the one the first. She was the first woman to hold a license, and uh, she was an amazing woman, very strong, great character. She must have had to been in in, in the sort of nineteen sixties. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think probably a little bit better than the eighteen hundreds, but <laughs> I think uh, it was pretty tough then. And Ellen Challoner's stakes at Newmarket would be something extra to celebrate this pioneering woman's achievement. Since the landmark court case, women trainers have won some major races. Jenny Pittman became the first woman to train the winner of the Grand National in 1983, a feat she repeated in 1995, and the Cheltenham Gold Cup in 1984, which she won again in 1991. Venetia Williams, Sue Smith, and our podcast guest, Lucinda Russell, have since won the world's most famous steeplechase at Aintree. Whilst in the 21st century, Henrietta Knight trained best mate to win three successive Cheltenham Gold Cups in 2002, 3 and 4. And in October 2021, the flat trainer Jane Chapel Hyam, who like Gay is based in Newmarket, won the Group 1 Sun Chariot Stakes at the Home of Racing with her filly Saffron Beach. But there is no mistaking that Ellen Challoner was the first woman trainer in 1886. Esther, how significant do you think that Ellen Challoner is to the history of horse racing? 
I think she's hugely significant and 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 it's quite interesting how how she's um, largely been forgotten over time when she was clearly such a, a massive fixture um in in the world of new markets um in in the late 19th century um she was in in many ways a pioneer although perhaps we could also just say that um she was formally recognized as a trainer when there were probably uh, lots of um daughters and wives of trainers who who were also taking on quite a lot of responsibility um in in training yards at the same time but it was um it was Alan who was really the the first woman to to hold a, a trainer's license um, in this country. Well, it's you know she's the, she she was the first um, female trainer, so it's fairly significant um, that way. Uh, her husband died, so she got the license, and um, you know I think she was lucky to get the license because they wouldn't. I don't. I think it took a while for her to get granted the license. Uh, because she was a female, you know, and um, so she did make history. And you'd be right behind a campaign to get her a get her proper recognition. Well, um, she is my great great grandmother, so I would, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely, we should have a headstone. Ellen Challenor should be commended and and have a headstone. Yes, I hope this whole thing um, will bring about. Ellen getting a bit of recognition for who she was. I know it was a very long time ago, but it's still quite a historical fact in the in the history of racing. And and nobody, really, very few people in the racing world have ever heard of her. Uh, I think she deserves significantly more recognition than she gets. I know there's a campaign to have a headstone placed in uh, Newmarket Cemetery. I think that campaign should be supported. Um, it's not semi-worrying that an encyclopedia of British horse racing doesn't mention her, uh, but concentrates on the court case in, in 1966. Racehorse training is not an easy profession. Uh, it's a small business that you have to run. Um, and you're having to do it within strict rules. You're managing a small army of stable staff. Um, you've got all the uh, worry of looking after horses, getting them fit, getting them to the races. And for her to do that successfully and on her own, she was a widow. Her husband had died at a young age. Uh, she was about 40, just over 40. Uh, with eight she did have eight children that she had to to bring up so adding that all together she does deserve the recognition and I think she deserves more work to be done on her contribution to racing uh, she was an important figure at Newmarket she can uh, as I said she was born into a racing family she can considers herself to be part of the racing family right up to her death in the 1940s um, at a grand old age. Um, Stephen, I feel really strongly about my campaign that I've started. Uh, that is uh, to place a gravestone on my famous great-grandmother, Ellen Challoner, unmarked grave. 
she, uh, she was an amazing woman. The first woman to be given a permit by the Jockey Club to train racehorses in 1886 and with success in a man's world. It's sad, I feel, that the British racing world has almost forgotten this famous woman. I now plan to make every effort to succeed in my campaign to honor her with a recognition for a stone to be placed on her grave. If you would like to know more about the campaign, please contact Marietta at Marietta underscore CK at hotmail.com. That's Marietta spelt M-A-R-I-E-T-T-A underscore CK at hotmail.com. I hope you've all enjoyed this podcast, which has been made possible by the help of Ellen's great-granddaughters, Marietta and Susie, great-great-grandson, Charlie, Dr. Esther Harper, Tim Cox, Lucinda Russell, and Gay Kellaway. Intros and outros by Marguerite Webley. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the pad and pad don't forget if you like the show please do leave us a rating and review sports social podcast network